Pranams, and welcome to you all. I'm Brother Govindananda, and all of us here in Paramahansa Yogananda's ashrams hope that this week of convocation, and we're nearing the end now, but we all hope that it has been a week of wonderful spiritual renewal for you all. Our subject this evening is living with purpose in God's dream show of creation. And this is actually one of the most important subjects on the spiritual path. And for my, to my tastes, it is also one of the most thrilling. And it's not just important and it's not just thrilling, but especially in difficult times, it is one of great comfort. Because our Guru tells us that the sages from ancient India all down through the ages tell us that in reality this vast universe is nothing but in reality a materialization of the thought of God, a vast cosmic dream or in modern terms a cosmic movie. To get a visceral sense of this right now, imagine, or for many of us all we need to do is remember, the last time we, we woke up from a bad dream. Try to remember the thrill of relief you felt as you were starting to wake up and all the drama of the dream, maybe you were being chased by creditors or whatever, maybe you had ill health in the dream, whatever it was, as you began to wake up, this, this feeling of wonderful relief begins to wash over you. Oh, it doesn't matter, it was all a dream. And the sages tell us that this feeling, this thrill, is the merest glimpse of what will be our experience when we ultimately, finally, wake up from this vast cosmic dream. That's what we have to look forward to. Just how important is it to make this truth part of our lives? Well, Paramahansa Yogananda, on the very first page of his commentary on the Bhagavad Gita, God talks with Arjuna, and this is 1,200 pages of commentary, but right at the very beginning, he's, he recommends to every spiritual seeker two things to do every day. Now, you won't be surprised to find out that the first one is to meditate. This is at the very core of our path. But the second one, he says, the second one is to dwell every day on the truth that life is a variety entertainment of dream movies full of the hazards of duality, villains of evil, and heroic adventures with goodness. Dwell every day on this truth. Dwell every day on this truth, he encourages us. So it's important. But why is it so important? Isn't it enough to meditate and just live a good life and, you know, just get on with things? Well, we'll get into many of the reasons why it's so important to think of life as a dream and to, and to try to live this way to the best of our ability. All we need to keep in mind right now is this, as Yoganandaji said, many practical benefits will come to us from such a true understanding of the physical world. So this is not just a philosophy, a concept, something to think about every now and then. This is a way to live our lives. And if we do this, we will find, through our own experience, many practical benefits will come to us. One caveat is worth mentioning up front for those of you that might not have come across this concept before. 
like all spiritual truth, there's a right way to understand it and a wrong way. True story. So some of the monks were out for an outing one day, and after a while we thought, it's, it's lunchtime, let's stop and get some lunch, some refreshments. So we did, and uh, one of the monks found out that he had forgotten his wallet. He had left his wallet in the ashram. And he told us so. And he said, you know, I'm sorry, I forgot my wallet, but, you know, you can buy me lunch, that's okay, because remember, money is just a dream. And he was right. He had us. Money is just a dream, ultimately. So we bought him lunch. Of course, food is also just a dream, and there's no need for us to really eat, is there? I mean, if it's all just a dream. So we said, we told him, you know, well, food is just a dream too, and we didn't give him the lunch. We made him sweat for it. Of course, we did finally give it to him. Because here's the point. Even though life is ultimately a dream, it's not an excuse for, for avoiding or running away from the, our responsibilities in life. We have to pay our way, we have to serve, we have to do all the things we need to do. And we can't just sit back and say, it's all a dream. If we try to do that, what we find is that paradoxically, the world becomes even more concrete, even more in our face, as it were. It's, it's, it's a strange thing, but this, that's the fruit of laziness. So even though life is a dream, it doesn't mean that we don't go about things as we ordinarily would. So that we can really make this concept of life as a dream work for us as a realization. Let's take a look at this from as many different angles as we can, as our time this evening allows. There's much more to this than just simply reminding ourselves from time to time, oh yeah, yeah, life is a dream, much more to it than that. In particular, I'd like to look at four aspects of living life as a dream that are at the heart of this practice. And let's say also, just to help us keep track of things, that each of them is 25% of the total. So let's talk about the first aspect, the first 25%. I was living in London for a few years before I entered the ashram, and this particular, at this particular time I was working in a place where the, the office was, was quite chaotic. There was a lot of drama, it was very difficult, people were worried about their future, maybe there were going to be some layoffs, it, it, was, it was quite difficult. And one day I was going home from work, I was on the subway, the tube as the Londoners call it, and one of, one of my co-workers sat down beside me and he said, uh, can I talk to you for a few minutes? And I said, sure, you know, what's up? I hadn't really uh, spoken to him much before this. And he said, you know our workplace? I said, well, yeah, uh, what about it? He said, it, it, it's quite chaotic, isn't it? He had not been working there long. And I said, yeah, yeah it's, uh, it's quite chaotic at times. There's, uh, people are under a lot of stress. And he said, uh, but but I look at you, and you don't. You you look as if you're enjoying it, actually. And I, I I assured him, no, no, I'm not really enjoying it, even if it might look like I am. And he said, but, but if you're not enjoying it, how is it that it looks like you are? I mean, what's what's that about? And so I I, I thought long and hard about whether to tell him. But he seemed very sincere, and so I thought, well, let me take a chance. So I said, okay, two things. I meditate, 
and or at least try to. I've, I haven't been meditating long, but I try to. And I find that this is very helpful to, for keeping my sanity. But there's another practice I do, which I think right now is just as important, maybe even more so. And I tell you this not because I think you need to live your life this way as, as if this is an, an object of truth. You can just pretend as, as if it is. And you will find remarkable results if you do this. Now, I have to say that this is a practice, this is a, a philosophy, if you like, that is you know, talked about in the ancient scriptures of India and, and the Far East. And sages that have penetrated, if you like, to the core of, of reality tell us that this is how things actually are. But we're not there, and we don't need to be there. We can still use this and make life a little bit easier for ourselves. All we have to do is go about our days acting as if this life is a dream. And uh, he, he thought, he thought uh, hmm, just live life as a dream. I said, yeah, what you'll find if you do this, it gives you an objectivity that you probably are struggling to achieve right now. It will give you a distance from the drama that's going on in the office, and it will allow you to maintain a little bit more happiness than, than otherwise. It'll also allow you to see what's happening and decide what the best way forward is, no matter what it is you're going through. And then at the end of the day, when you leave work, you can let it all fall away behind you. You don't have to take it home with you. And then you can enjoy the rest of your day. And then take it up again the next morning. And just, just live your life that way. Again, it's, all you have to do is act as if it is true. And then see what happens. So he, he really listened. And then it was his stop and it was time for him to get off. So he got up and left. And I didn't hear from him again about this until a few months later, when I had gone to work in a different part of the organization, and I was getting ready to come here to America to become a monk. And I got a call one day, and it was, it was my coworker from the, from the subway. And he said, hey, I, I hear you're going to America. Um, uh, do you have time to get lunch together before you go? And I said, sure. I was kind of curious whether he had put, put what I had said into practice, and even though I wasn't going to ask him, I thought, well, maybe he'll say something about it. So we went out for lunch, and indeed, he brought it up. He said, you know, I just wanted to tell you. That thing you told me some months ago about living life as a dream, looking at life as if it is a dream? I said, yeah. He said, that really helped. That really helped. I think it was what allowed me to get through that period in my work life and keep everything together. So thank you very much. And it was wonderful to hear that because he wasn't particularly on a spiritual path that I knew, but he put it into practice and he saw the benefits. So the first aspect of living life as a dream is simply this. Choose to see life as a dream. Just choose. Just choose to see it this way. And even though this is just the first aspect, it alone can give results in our daily lives. By the way, not long after this experience with my co-worker, and uh, this was still before I came into the ashram, I was out for a drive one day with one of my cousins. And she was explaining to me some of the difficulties that she was going, that she was going through in her life at the time. 
Now, I had just had good success with telling my co-worker that life is a dream, and, and it really helped him. So I thought, well, let me, let, me, let me try it again. It worked the first time, so it'll probably work the second time. The thing is, I really forgot that I, had, I carefully laid out the groundwork for this understanding the first time. This time, I just blithely said, don't worry about it. Life is just a dream. And she did not react well to that at all. And that's perfectly understandable. It came across as very uncompassionate, frankly. Like, like I was really saying, it's not that big a deal. Don't worry about it. I was saying that, <laughs> but it, it was not with the, right, with the right tone. I made it worse by then asking her if we could change the radio station. And she said, it's easy for you to say that life is a dream, running away to an ashram. And don't touch that radio. This is my car. Anyway, let's move on and discuss the second aspect, which is simply this. This is not just any old dream, some kind of existentialist void without any purpose. This is God's dream. And I think those of us on the spiritual path, when we think of these two, two thoughts side by side, this is a dream and this is God's dream. We see and we feel immediately the difference between them. The first one is good. It helps us to get a little distance. The second one is even better because now we can feel God's presence in all of creation. We can, uh, as our guru says, in every pore of creation. And now this dream is not just something objective, but it is something personal as well. When life gets really hard, when the real tragedies happen, the loss of a loved one, for example, it is hard to believe in those moments that life is just a dream. So it is at such times especially, we need to make things personal, make it personal between us and God and Guru. We remind ourselves as often as we can that God is with us at all times in this dream. This dream which has now become, at least for a short time, a nightmare. And that God has sent us a Guru who is right here with us, no matter what we're going through, at all times. Even an avatar, someone who is eternally awake in God, even an avatar feels difficult, feels the pain of separation at the loss of a loved one. So, of course, these times are hard for us. When his guru, Sri Teshwar, passed, Yoganandaji wrote, A stream of black brooding polluted the inner river of bliss, which for so many years had meandered under the sands of all my perceptions. So it's that hard for a guru. It's going to be hard for us. But as we hold on to these truths and as time passes, we gain that objectivity that maybe we can't have right at that most difficult time. And we look back and then we start to see it in the perspective that God wants us to see it. But we just have to be patient with ourselves. A long-time senior monastic told me of the time he was talking with Sri Dayamada in her office about the challenges of life and how mystifying life is to people in general. And Ma said this, Here we are, the product of countless incarnations, once again facing the ups and downs of life, 
trying to figure out who we are, where we are going, and how we will get there. Blind to our past, often bemoaning our situation, thinking and feeling, if only things were different. Then she said, with great compassion and love, Master has come at this time to show people that life is a movie, a dreamscape, with experiences and habits of past incarnations spilling over into this one, creating our present conditions. But if we are not happy with the script of life handed to us by our karma, our guru tells us that we can rewrite it, change the story completely, or just drop it in the circular file, and she made like this motion, like dropping the script into a trash can. And then we can create a new one for ourselves, and this time it has God and Guru as the leading stars. So those are the first two aspects, choosing to see life as a dream, and choosing to see it as God's dream. As Yoganandaji said, for those who think God far away, He is far away. But for those who think him near, he is ever near. It's, it's our choice. It's incredible to think of, for, for, to think about. For those who think him far away, he is far away. But for those who think him near, he is ever near. Now, it's not difficult at all to put these two aspects into practice. Not difficult at all. Like I said, all we need to do is choose to do it. The difficulty comes, and I think we all know this, in trying to maintain the, this perspective, in the battle then of our daily activities. We start, we get sucked into whatever is going on in our day, and then five hours later, maybe at lunchtime or whenever, we realize, oh, uh, I, was, I was supposed to be trying to see this as a dream. And that can be very frustrating. What do we do in these situations? Paramahansa Yogananda said that there is one very special quality that we need to cultivate if we are to realize and not just think that life is a dream. Here it is. He said, if you want to wake up from this cosmic dream world, you must practice calmness no matter what happens. If you want to wake up from this cosmic dream world, you must practice calmness no matter what happens. Now, by calmness, our guru doesn't just mean a sort of an everyday calmness that we might experience, for example, when we wake up from, from a, a good night's sleep. In Lesson 3, How to Know God, he describes calmness as one of the ten manifestations of God. He describes it this way, calmness is a deeper state than peace. Peace may be compared to a lake whereon all ripples of disturbance have subsided. Calmness may be compared to that still lake when the moon and stars become perfectly reflected therein. When God manifests as calmness in meditation, you intuitively perceive His divine presence mirrored in the calm lake of your consciousness. But this meditative calmness doesn't come out of nowhere. To experience it, we usually need to have developed the ability to maintain our calmness in everyday life. So let's talk now about this everyday calmness. There are literally dozens of practices, dozens of things we could do to develop or maintain our calmness in daily life. You, you know them. 
sufficient sleep, moderate exercise, yoga asanas done, done well, muscular relaxation, walking in nature, spending time with friends and family, usually, listening to music, some music, a good diet, the list goes on and on. These, and these things work for virtually everyone. But we're all unique, and some people experience a kind of calmness from the most amazing activities, perhaps climbing a rock face. I'm told that if you climb a rock face, I've never done it, but if you do, you can be so in the moment that the mind quietens down and the calmness descends over the entire system. So I'm told. But in the quest for calmness, might I suggest reading first Paramahansa Yogananda's Inner Peace, How to Be Calmly Active and Actively Calm. Anyway, I began to wonder reading this list and, and, and researching this, looking at the huge range of things that can contribute to, to calmness. Might there not be, at least for most of us, one single best thing that we can do to become calm or to stay calm? The one best place to start for most people. Because we're busy. There's lots of things to do. We don't necessarily have time to fit walking in nature and quality time with friends and family and all these things and a good night's sleep, whatever, however many hours we're supposed to get now. We, we don't always have the opportunity to fit all these things into our day. So what's the one best thing we could do? Where could we start? So many different professional fields have studied this, each from their own perspective in recent years, as we've become better able to distinguish subtle changes in internal physiological states in the body and brain. And what I found, and maybe this was just my natural bias, but what I found was that the research seems to point to one particular practice for creating a good foundation of calmness in our lives. It's simply this, actively think loving thoughts of other people and wish them well. Actively think loving thoughts of other people and wish them well. This practice has been shown to increase activity of the parasympathetic nervous system, that part of the nervous system that helps us to relax and thus to feel calm. And we feel this calmness in our body and mind both, which is a very important point. Even though calmness in either the body or the mind conduces to calmness in the other, it's not so hard to have one without the other. And sometimes, you know, in our experience, we know people like this. They're very physically relaxed, mentally not so much so. And then the opposite. Well, we want both. What was very interesting in the studies I read about is that many of the subjects who reported feelings of relaxation and calmness after praying for others in this way were not expecting to feel this as a result of the practice at all. But from a yogic point of view, these findings make total sense. After all, the very first step on the path of yoga is ahimsa, or nonviolence. And nonviolence, as Yoganandaji tells us in his autobiography, is the natural outgrowth of the law of forgiveness and love. Ahimsa is the natural outgrowth of the law of forgiveness and love. When you think about it, all five yama, these, uh, these practices that make up the very first step in yoga, they can all be thought of as guidelines for how we are to treat other people. 
and the second step, the Niyama, mostly have to deal with how we treat ourselves. But how to treat others comes first, and to love them comes first of all. And that's worth considering for a path which is all about calmness, stilling the modifications of the mind stuff, as Patanjali even goes so far as to define yoga right at the beginning of the Yoga Sutras. And the Bhagavad Gita agrees, O Arjuna, the best type of yogi is he who feels for others, whether in grief or pleasure, even as he feels for himself. Why is praying for others so conducive to calmness? Well, maybe we could think of it this way. If we're not actively sending out good thoughts to other people, um, well then what are we doing? And what effects might that be having on our body and mind? It's so easy for our thoughts to drive our calmness away, without us even being aware of what is going on, most of the time, I'd say. But maybe we can just think neutral thoughts about people, you know? Oh, he's 25 years old. But, I mean, <laughs> even that, it could be like, oh, he's 25. You know, we have, we have a way of putting judgments and that, uh, onto almost the simplest statements about people. Now, among the, the many cognitive biases that seem to be part and parcel of how our minds and nervous systems work is one that researchers have called the, the negativity bias. Now, it's not as, as nasty as it sounds, necessarily. It's just that in this world, we are geared to, to be very attentive and reactive to threats in the environment. And this makes perfect sense, obvious, obviously. This keeps us physically safe but it can get out of control, unless we actively work to keep it under control. As Paramahansa Ji often said, life is like a swiftly flowing river. When you seek God, you swim against the current of worldly tendencies that pull your mind toward limited material and sensory consciousness. You must make the effort to swim upstream every moment. If you relax, be neutral, let's say, the strong current of delusion will carry you away. Your efforts must be constant. So it's really quite binary. It's one thing or the other, for the most part. And this is one of, just one of the reasons that the worldwide prayer circle is a wonderful thing to be part of. I'm guessing it helps us almost as much as it helps the people that we're praying for. So those are the first three aspects. Seeing life as a dream, choosing to do so, seeing life as God's dream, and developing our calmness. So what's the final aspect? Well, it's easy to pray for most people, but what about the difficult cases? The people that might have hurt us in some way? I think there are two ways around this particular difficulty. The first one is that it greatly helps to remember that these difficult individuals, they're not just people, they're souls, even as we are, each of whom is playing a role in this movie, even as we are, and God is in them and they are in God. When we can remember that other people are first and foremost souls, a very interesting thing happens. 
we become more aware that we are souls too. Swami Shamananda, who was a member of the SRF YSS Board of Directors and played a vital role in the growth of our Guru's work in India, was once asked by one of the monks here when he was visiting Mount Washington here back in the early 70s, Swamiji, how do you see someone that you are either challenged by or cannot figure out where they are coming from? How do, you, how do you see that person as a soul? And Swami Shamananda's answer was, was very interesting. And to me, it, it really speaks to how all the great saints, they make the teachings of the scriptures and the Guru their own. They figure out a way to make these principles work for them in daily life. And this is what Swamiji said, make it easy on yourself immediately. Visualize that time in the future when you and that person you're dealing with, when both of your souls have finally achieved oneness with spirit. There you both are, immersed in the cosmic sphere of ever-existing, ever-conscious, ever-new joy, recognizing that in essence you are both the same and that you have both come from God while still retaining your own individuality. Then. When you do that, you can bypass the particular difficulty that you might be having with them. You're not denying what they are right now. You're just getting in touch with who they really are. As we pray for others as souls, we will see how God and Guru become much more real in our lives too. It's as if God has been waiting for us to see Him in other people. And Master actually refers to us people as God's greatest manifestation. You know, there are the ten manifestations of God listed in Lesson 3, and it's like we're the eleventh of the ten greatest manifestations. But the math works because each of us have all the other ten great manifestations within us. God's greatest manifestation. So if we if we're not trying to see God in other people, it's like we're not even getting off the ground in our spiritual path. So the second way, I think, to get around any reluctance to pray for difficult people is to start by praying for ourselves and those we know we love, our near and dear ones. Then, once we've established those feelings very clearly in our own heart and mind, when no other feelings exist for us at that moment, all we have to do then is to allow those feelings to keep spreading. It doesn't require an effort to do this. In fact, it requires an effort to stop it at this point. We just need to get out of our own way. And you will see that this is the approach that Paramahansa Yogananda takes in the meditation we'll be practicing together after this talk. And this way of expanding our love outwards from ourselves to those we love, to other people, to the entire world, was also a feature of the practices and the studies that found just how powerful this practice is for creating calmness at a fundamental level in body and mind. You might have noticed that the title of the talk is Living with Purpose in God's Dream Show of Creation. Purpose, but it's, but it's a, just a dream. How does that work? When Krishna told Arjuna in the Bhagavad Gita, this is at the beginning of chapter 3, that he still had to fight the battle of Kurukshetra, 
Even though Krishna had just explained in chapter 2 that everything is just a cosmic dream, Arjuna was extremely perplexed about this. And, and we can sympathize with Arjuna. It can be hard to understand at first. But the fact remains that we need not give up our noble purposes in life at all. In fact, we must not give them up. As Paramahansaji puts it in his talk, The Dream Nature of the World, in Man's Eternal Quest, he says, You cannot expect to wake up from the delusion that earth life is real merely by running away into the forest. You have to play out to the end the part that is given you. Each human being is contributing to the enactment of the motion picture of the cosmos. If you want to be happy, you should play out your part with dignity, assurance and happiness. And yet the more we pray for other people, our purposes and goals in life somehow take on a deeper richness. Perhaps nothing has changed on the surface in terms of what we do with our days, and yet everything has changed. Remember the story I told earlier on where Sri Dayamata said that if we're not happy with the script of life handed to us, that we should rewrite it and just create a better one? There's another scriptwriter that's involved here, and he's uninvited, but he likes to lurk around the set. And of course, I'm talking about Maya, and it's really best not to accept his rewrites, because really, he's a hack writer. They're not good. They're not good suggestions. Brother Turiananda, a much-loved SRF monastic who passed away some years ago, had a very simple way of dealing with Maya. He said, the ego is constantly trying to tell us that this world is real. And unless you are on your toes, the trap is sprung. You know what I do? Whenever delusion tries to sneak in, I just whisper to myself, it's all a dream. When you get tested by Maya, a long philosophical discourse doesn't work. You have to get away. I found that after some diligent practice of this, I could quietly sidestep the delusive thought and let it pass by to bother somebody else. That was Brother Turiananda. But it was a simple technique and it worked for him. Just say, it's all a dream and get out of there. Now to the final point. And this is one I've already touched on, but which we need to address again. Because according to the Guru, it is the ultimate answer to all of the questions we might have about creation about all the joys and sufferings that we experience or are witness to, and their purpose. Questions we can only have while we're still in the dream, because once we've awakened from the dream, we no longer have the questions. Then we all understand it. But when we're in the dream, we ask these questions and we'd like to get answers now. Our Guru said, and this is in his talk, The Dream Nature of the World in Man's Eternal Quest, Difficulties come to us in order to awaken us to the realization that this life is a dream. That, that really pulled me up short when I first read this. I, I thought, difficulties come to me in order to make me realize that life is a dream? That, that's their purpose? It, it was astonishing. So I thought, I better really work at this because I, I really would like to minimize the, the difficulties that I'm about to encounter in the future. But going on with the quote, our guru said, this lesson we all have to learn. Then we can understand why there is so much difference in everything in the world. Some people are poor, 
some are rich, some are healthy, and some are sick. Although it may seem to be a terrible and cruel game, the justification of the complications of life is that all of it is only a dream. Take it as such. This is why the Guru encourages us to dwell on the dream nature of the world every day. So when we need to lean on that understanding, it is there for us, that it will support us through the difficult times. Brother Nandamoy, who I guess many of you still knew, know, he, you know, and, and he, he was one of our Guru's direct dis disciples, a term which he really disliked because he said, whoever heard of an indirect disciple? I mean, we are all our Guru's direct disciples. But he used to enjoy watching highlights of the Olympic Games every, every four years with the rest of the monks. And he would always be there. There are so many things we can learn from these athletes as the, you know, the, the challenges they overcome, the, the competition, the, the willingness to not give up, to keep going. And then just the sheer human drama, you know, after the, after the race is over, after the, you know, whatever the, whatever the sport is, when it's all over and the camera is zooming in and looking at the joys and despair on the faces of the athletes that have won and lost and they're gasping for breath on the track and it's, it's, it's amazing. But brother, of course, saw it in very spiritual terms. And he would, you know, as he was watching this, he would, he would make these different asides, like, you see that, 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 that person that just won that race? He has no idea how many lifetimes he has been working towards being the best in the world at, at this thing at this particular point in time. And then he would say, you, look, at the, look at the person there that came second, just a hair, just a hundredth of a second behind, but maybe, maybe very few people will ever remember that, that he even ran the race. And he worked no less hard than the, than the person that won. But his karma is such that he didn't win the race, that he couldn't win the race, at least this time. Maybe next time he'll be, he'll be luckier. And then he said, kind of summing it all up, until we see life as God's dream and as a personal instrument for continuous self-correction, there will always be times of frustration and a lack of understanding. And every, every, every minute of every event that Brother watched, he watched it with that, that understanding of what it can tell us about how we are to live our lives. But in the end, we will see how it was all worth it. In Autobiography of a Yogi, Paramahansa Yogananda described the time that God showed him the actual cosmic motion picture mechanism in a vision. He was sitting on his bed in the Encinitas Hermitage after he had written the chapter on the Law of Miracles in the Autobiography of a Yogi. And in this chapter, you might remember, he wrote at length on the cosmic motion picture of life. Now I'm going to take up the story in our Guru's own words. My room was dimly lit by two shaded lamps. Lifting my gaze, I noticed that the ceiling was dotted with small mustard-colored lights, scintillating and quivering with a radium-like luster. Myriads of penciled rays, like sheets of rain, gathered into a transparent shaft and poured silently upon me. At once, my physical body lost its grossness 
and became metamorphosed into astral texture. I felt a floating sensation as, barely touching my bed, the weightless body shifted slightly and alternately to left and right. I looked around the room. The furniture and walls were as usual, but the little massive light had so multiplied that the ceiling was invisible. I was wonderstruck. This is the cosmic motion picture mechanism. A voice spoke as though from within the light. Shedding its beam on the white screen of your bedsheets, it is producing the picture of your body. Behold, your form is nothing but light. I gazed at my arms, Yogananda continues, and moved them back and forth, yet could not feel their weight. Ecstatic joy overwhelmed me. The cosmic stem of light, blossoming as my body, seemed a divine re reproduction of the light beams that stream out of the projection booth in a cinema house and make manifest the pictures on the screen. For a long time, I experienced this motion picture of my body in the faintly lit theater of my own bedroom. Though I have had many visions, none has been more singular. This vision was so filled with joy for, for the Master, in fact, that he prayed to God right then and there to release him from his, from his incarnation, from his physical body. And as soon as he uttered that prayer, the vision abruptly ended, evidently, Master says, because my mission on earth was not yet complete. But one day, that experience will be ours too. And we will experience that from joy we come, in joy we live, and one day, in that sacred joy, we shall melt again. Jai Guru.